Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Um, in the next year. So, I'm a, I know that We've been speaking at the evening service about kingdom for like nine months now. Um, and I'm wondering, what, however, however much you've been around for that, how, what, what have you understood of the kingdom um, as, you've been, as you've been coming here, as you've been learning, as you've been hearing Anthony and others teach about it? What do you know of the kingdom? What do you think the kingdom is? What images do you get when, when you hear uh, the word kingdom, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? And what the kingdom of God actually is and how it, how it manifests now here on earth, it's one of those um, issues that's been debated for centuries and centuries in the church. And there's no definitive conclusion for what it actually is yet. Um, it's very ambiguous. And there are so many different opinions and perspectives on what it is and what it isn't and what it does and who's in it, da 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 da. Um, and in 2014, the New Testament scholar Scott McKnight um, released this book called Kingdom Conspiracy. And this was, uh, is quite a controversial book actually because it's challenged a lot of what um, was assumed or, or it's challenged the dominant views on what the kingdom actually is and uh, what it does and where it is and things like that. So it's a brilliant book and I do encourage you, get yourself a copy, read it. Um, it's, it is uh, quite controversial and provoking, uh, and he's not afraid to do that. He doesn't really take prisoners, um, but he's brilliant. Um, and I'm, so I'm going to explain a little bit about the book and then talk about the implications it has and what, it's, what God's actually been speaking to me about as I've been preparing this talk and as I read it um, last year and as I've been going back over it. Um, now, I'm not going to take sides on, what the, on the kingdom of God debate. I'm not going to take sides on what it is. I'm not going to present Scott McKnight's views and say that you have to believe them or, or you shouldn't believe them. Um, because I think one of the amazing things about our faith is, is that it's, some of it is so ambiguous. And there's, there's some simple truths in the Christian faith that you can just take and hold and keep. And they're easy to get, they're easy to understand, you can just grab hold of them. But there's a lot in the Bible and in our faith that isn't clear. And it requires context, it requires us to think, it requires us to read, it requires us to listen to different people's opinions and consider what we feel and listen to God about it as well and consider what is the Spirit saying to us about this. And I think we all have the ability to think about whether we agree with something or not. Most of, most of us have access to the internet now. Um, most of us have access to the internet on, on smartphones. And preachers like me, we can no longer get away with telling people what to believe and then expecting them to believe it because they have all the information in the world at, the, at their fingertips and they don't have to believe um, what we say. So as I'm speaking today, think about how, what, how Scott's view sits with you what he believes and what he says, how does that sit with you? Does it sit well? Does it disagree with you? Does it get you angry or frustrated? It might not. It might rub you up the wrong way. You, you might think it agrees with the Bible. You might think it doesn't. Um, but I encourage you, just uh, listen to God, weigh it up yourself. Um, 
I don't just want this to be some, some abstract teaching that doesn't really mean anything to us. I want this to have an actual applicable, something applicable that we can take away from this. So I'm going to be talking a lot about what, what as I said before, is what God's been speaking to me about this and um, how it relates to the church. So I'm speaking on what Scott McKnight's view is and then looking at what it means for us today. So Scott starts uh, the book by describing these two views of the kingdom. And firstly, he, he describes what he calls skinny jeans kingdom. Now, skinny jeans kingdom, this is the idea um, that the kingdom is brought about by social action projects. Um, it, the kingdom is present where there's justice, where there's mercy, where there's no oppression, uh, where there's no violence, where there's um, uh, no poverty and things like that. That's, so the kingdom of God happens when those things are brought about. So when, um, when uh, anyone acts to make this happen, that is when the kingdom breaks through. So in this view, the kingdom can be brought about by anyone. It doesn't matter whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. And if you're acting to bring about justice in these things that I just described, you are bringing the kingdom. And Scott McKnight summarizes by saying that this view is good deeds done by good people in the public sector for the common good. So this is quite a cool um, millennial trendy view of the kingdom because it's, uh, it's inclusive and it's wide and um, it's about making the world a better place, which is an amazing thing. So it's, it's, of course, it's quite popular. And then we have the second view, which is called the pleated pants kingdom. Um, and I guess we'd say, I don't know if in the north, I think you say pants, don't you, in the north, for trousers. I'd call them trousers. Um, pleated pants, he's, he's an American guy. So this second view um, says that the kingdom is uh, God's redemptive rule, which he establishes over human beings. So in other words, whenever God breaks in, uh, this world to save, to reconcile, uh, to heal, to restore. That's where the kingdom is. So wherever that happens, and I guess um, it's, this is called pleated, pleated pants kingdom because uh, it's quite old school. It's quite a traditional view. And McKnight says that these, um, both these views contain some important truths about what kingdom is because there's not, he, he believes that there's no kingdom that isn't about a just society and there's no kingdom that isn't about Jesus uh, redeeming people and Jesus ruling over his people. But he believes they fall short of what Jesus actually meant when he said kingdom. You see, both of these views, they see kingdom and church as separate things. And what Scott argues in his book is that the kingdom and the church are a lot more closely related than these two views would suggest. So he goes on to, to talk about um, uh, you, you have to, in order to understand what the kingdom is, you have to understand the overarching story of the Bible, what story the Bible is telling. So many people think that the overarching story of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So creation, God created everything. He created the universe and human beings. Fall, when uh, Eve uh, ate the apple and then gave some to her husband, Adam, um, human beings fell into sin. Uh, redemption, Jesus comes back and he redeems by, by dying on the cross. He, he redeems and reconciles humanity back to God so that we can be right before God, pure before him and in relationship with him. And then consummation, not marital consummation. This is about the, uh, this is in the future. So the consummation of the kingdom. So the kingdom comes, Jesus returns to this earth in his fullness to rule and reign unambiguously without question over humanity. 
So, but he, so he, he says, so that's what some people believe is the overarching story of the Bible. Scott says that is included in the overarching story of the Bible, but it's too narrow. What he asserts is that it is about God being king. The Bible is more about God than it is about us. So he, he has this, uh, the Abba story. So Abba is plan A. God rules the world through his elected people. And he, but he is still king. Then he goes to plan B. Israel choose a human king to rule over them. And then when Jesus comes, it goes back to plan A because through Jesus, God is now back in charge. He is now king and he is ruling his people who are now the church. So it is about Jesus being king. And because it is about Jesus, it is about us and who we are in Jesus. So when we look in, in the Gospels, we read of Jesus saying things like the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God has come near. And what someone back then listening to Jesus would have understood it as, Scott asserts, is um, they would have thought the kingdom was a group of people ruled by a king, a group of people governed by a king. It's a group of people um, who, who are being ruled by God, and that sounds a bit like church, doesn't it? We are the people of God living under his leadership and his rule. And then he brings it together and he says there are five biblical elements for a kingdom. Here we go. One, you have to have a king, and that king is Jesus. Two, the king has to rule, so Jesus is lord and leader. Three, there is a people being ruled, and that looks like the church now. Four, there's a land. Um, this is a bit more ambiguous, but it's wherever the people of God are present, there's, that's their land. And five, there is a law. Holy Spirit, Sermon on the Mount. Um, and then the Old Testament law as well. So we have these five elements of a kingdom, of a biblical kingdom. Is everyone following me, by the way? Yes. Good. <laughs> um, so we have five elements of a kingdom. And McKnight says that the kingdom and the church are made up of the five exact same elements. The kingdom of the church are essentially the same thing. So what he's saying is that the kingdom and the church are the same thing. And he explicitly says, this is, why, this is where it gets controversial, that there is no kingdom now that is outside the church. The kingdom does not exist outside the church. So both, as I said about five minutes ago, both of these dominant views, pleated pants and skinny jeans, they both believe that the kingdom and the church are separate things and they can exist apart from each other and that the kingdom is different. Surely it can exist outside the church. And I think this view is understandable that it can. Because when you look at the church and you think, surely this is not what the kingdom looks like. Sometimes when we see church, you can see the church as an institution, as an organisation. And sometimes the people of the church don't act like they are. Don't act like they're living under God's rule. People have been hurt by the church, ostracised by it, condemned by it. So no wonder people see the kingdom and the church as separate. They see all the politics and baggage that churches have and that being part of a church can come with. They see its lack of compassion and lack of action with social justice issues that they're passionate about. So they might disengage with it and leave the church. Some people you know might have disassociated themselves from it. For any number of reasons, they don't like politics, they don't like institutionalisation, they've, they've been hurt by it. But they'd say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not part of a church. 
I'm a Christian, but I don't do church. And I think people want to pursue the ideals of the kingdom and what it represents apart from the church. They might have a mindset that I'm sure a lot of people do now that the kingdom of God is where God's will is perfectly administered, which to some extent it is, yes. And that the church is this uh, added on extra, that's unimportant in, in the grand scheme of things. And perhaps they'd think that this kingdom, the kingdom of God is this ideal that they're pursuing, that we're pursuing as his church. And the church is just one way to achieve the ideal, the values of the kingdom. The kingdom is what's going to come in the future and then we'll just get rid of the church because it's no longer needed. So Scott would disagree with all of the above because both the kingdom and the church have this now and not yet reality. I know back in January, Anthony did a talk on this, this um, uh, now and not yet reality that, that the kingdom has. And it's, it, it's the kingdom has been inaugurated on earth, so it's been introduced here on earth. And it was introduced here um, through Jesus. But there will come a time when it's fully consummated, when the kingdom comes in its completeness. And the kingdom will come in its fullness where God will reign everything. He'll reign over everything and forever. And there's no hurt, no wrong, no injustice. And it, it will just be God and his people forever. But the church, it also has the same thing. The church has this now not yet reality as well. It has a better future. And whatever the church is like now, with all its issues and all its politics um, and all the hurt it's done people, it has this perfect future. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 says this. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church has this glorious future where it's going to be presented to Jesus as perfect. That is not the current state of things. The church is far from perfect. We all know that. But one day it will be. So the church is not something that we have to put up with until Jesus returns. The church is Jesus' plan A to reach this world. It's easy to disassociate the kingdom and church because we see one as the ideal and the other as the lazy, fat institution that we just have to deal with, that just exists until Jesus returns. But according to Scott, we can't do that because the kingdom cannot and does not exist outside of the church. They're both made up of the same elements. They both have this future. The church is a people ruled by a king. And the kingdom is a people ruled by a king. They're the same thing. Okay, so so what? Who cares about any of this? So whether you agree with this or not, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the implications of this, what this actually means for us. How does any of this affect our lives? As I've been praying, as I've been thinking, um, I think that the primary thing God's been speaking to me about and what Scott does really well in this book, whether you agree with his kingdom view or not, is that he highlights the importance and the value of church. As you see and think how closely Scott aligns the church with the kingdom, you think, wow, the church is actually serious. 
It's the people of God learning to live under the rule of Jesus. And it's about inviting people into that family, bringing others into it. It's important, it's so important that Jesus loves it so much that he gave himself up for it. He died for it, as it says in Ephesians. I was at one of um, my best friend's weddings a couple of weeks ago. It was uh, Johnny and Helen Christmas. We love the surname. Um, and I love weddings, and I especially love weddings when, when you know the couple really well. And there's something about the moment where the bride is walking down the aisle and the groom is waiting for her at the end of the aisle. And it feels so significant. It feels so powerful, and it's such a holy moment. And as, as you look at the groom and as I looked at Johnny, as he was looking at Helen, with tears welling up in his eyes. The groom always cries. I love it when the groom cries. You, you just get a sense of how big that moment is. And as Helen was walking towards him, I was thinking, this is the imagery that the Bible uses to describe Jesus in the church. The Bible uses one of the greatest acts of human love and commitment to describe what Jesus feels about his church. Jesus is the groom. The church is the bride. And he loves it so much. One day the church is going to be presented to him perfect and holy. And that moment is going to be unbelievably powerful. How can the imagery of a bride and groom be used to describe that relationship that he has with the church? With all its quirks and problems and divisions, it is dearly loved by Jesus. He doesn't want to just get rid of it. And as well as loving the church, he also takes it seriously. We've just come out of a series over summer um, across all our sites looking at uh, seven letters that Jesus writes to the seven churches, um, uh, seven churches across Western Turkey. Uh, and Jesus writes these um, personal letters to these, uh, to these churches through John. And in them, he encourages them, he uplifts them, he affirms them. Um, uh, he, he encourages them as they go through persecution. He, he challenges them with what he disagrees with. And what I've been learning throughout the summer is how seriously he takes the church. He takes it seriously enough that he personally talks to John to send a personal message to these different churches. He takes it seriously, and in fact, it's because he needs the church to be all that it can be, because he knows and he believes that the local church is the hope of the world. He knows the church is the primary means through which he reaches every single human being on this earth with his love and with his salvation. So through the church, people are brought into relationship with him. And of course, by the church, I don't mean services, I don't mean programs, I don't mean fancy lights and technical equipment that doesn't work properly. I mean people. The church, is, the church is people, it's the body of Christ. And he loves and takes us so seriously, no matter how much we mess up. And the church, the people of God, us Christians, we have uh, an eternal future. And when we build the church, we're building something that carries over into eternity. It lasts for eternity. Isn't that an incredible thing? That we can do something, we can contribute to this thing 
that lasts eternally. Building the church is not a side project while we wait for the kingdom to come, while we wait to die and go to heaven. It will last eternally. And I really believe that the most significant thing we can do with our lives is build the church. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Now this verse is is about money, it's about possessions, but Jesus' message is clear here. Invest in things that are eternal. Invest in what is eternal. Build for eternity. We can devote our time to so many pursuits that don't make a difference. And I know I focus my time and my energy and my money on things that just don't matter, that I can't take with me. But actually, when we invest in building the church, we invest in what is eternal. And what is eternal is people. Building the church is about people, inviting people into the family of God and building them up to become more like Jesus. So I know it it can be an abstract term to build the church. What does that even mean? What does it look like? It's wide. It's varied. And of course, inviting people into it is, is key. We want to give people the opportunity to know Jesus to become one of his people, to have a relationship with him, to live under his ruling and his leading and the guiding of the Spirit. I think building the church also looks like discipleship, helping people to go deep with Jesus, to become more like him, teaching and showing them what it means to live under the rule of Jesus. I think building a church can look like serving on teams, welcome team, sound team, visuals. Serving is such a key part of it even though it can feel insignificant at times. It can look like so many different things, and the beautiful thing about building the church is that everyone gets to play. Everyone gets to do it. You don't need to work for the church to do it. It's not the paid staff here get to build it, and then everyone else comes, and everyone else just comes. We all get to build it. Everyone gets to participate and bring the unique giftings that God has given every single one of you. Romans 12 says this, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Everyone has gifts. That's not an exhaustive list. There are loads in the Bible. Everyone has something to bring. And Paul encourages everyone to use them. So as we come into land, my question is, how can you bring what God has given you to build the church? He's gifted every single one of us. And as I close, I want to ask, how do you see the church? Do you, do you love the church? Do you care about it as Jesus does? Maybe you've been hurt by it previously. Maybe you become jaded by it. You're, you're done with it. You become disillusioned with it. You want to bin it off. 
You want to follow Jesus on your own? Maybe, maybe you're bored of church. I don't know. But I think don't give up on it because Jesus hasn't given up on it. I want to see the church how Jesus sees it. And I want to believe in it as Jesus believes in it because he believes it's the hope of the world. And I want to spend my life building it because it is the only thing that we can take with us. It is the only thing that is eternal. Roscoe, could you uh, come up, please, mate? Thanks, bro. So I think it'd be good just to take a moment. Um, I hope God's been speaking to you through this. Have a think. How is it God has gifted you? What do you bring? And I feel like there might be um, some people here who really don't think they've got anything to bring, who think they're out for the count. They think, how could God have gifted me? What can he have given me? Look at me. I think I said at the start there are some simple truths in the Bible that you can just take. And that's one of them. God has gifted you in a unique way. And he calls you to build his church in whatever way you can. Where can you start with that this evening? How can you build someone up? What's your workplace like? Are there there people there you want to invite uh, into this family, into the kingdom, to be one of Jesus' people? That's building the church. That's building for eternity. Is there a family member you need to reconcile with? Jesus, thank you that you've gifted every single one of us to pour ourselves out and serve you and build this church. Jesus, I pray that we see the church as you do, as something you're proud of, as something you want to build. And Father, as we respond, as we worship, Continue to speak to us. Show us how we're gifted. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.